like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters, hidden stories and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week, the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure. Can't swatch in store? Finding your perfect foundation match is basically impossible right now. That's why Il Maquillage's online quiz is such a game changer. It finds your perfect match in seconds from the comfort of your own home. And it gets even better. With Try Before You Buy, you can try your full-size shade at home free for 14 days. So convenient in times like these. Take the quiz at ilmaquillage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. Hello. Hello, Josh. Hi. Hi. You have Jamie and Amy. Yay. Yay. (laughs) How are you? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? We're good. I was actually just down in San Diego doing an art installation on Coronado. Oh, fun. Lucky. Well, yeah, it was fun, um, but it was rainy and cold and I didn't get to see anybody. It was kind of just work, work, work. But it was nice to be back in the old stomping grounds. Not that I ever hung out in Coronado. It's like very fancy pants over there. I saw some really cool photos of San Diego. I forget where yesterday. It was like all nice and sunny. I was like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I live in San Diego, so I won't rub it in, but it's been pretty nice the past couple of days. I think, Amy, you must have taken the rain with you because it's been great. <laughs> oh, that's how it goes. Thank you for doing this. We're excited to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie. I'm Amy, and this is Clever. Today on Clever, we have Josh Higgins. Josh is an all-around creative and graphic designer who's currently a senior creative director at Facebook on the Building 8 team, which is focused on building new hardware products to advance Facebook's efforts in virtual reality, augmented reality, artificial reality, and the company mission to connect the world. 
Before Josh joined Facebook, he was the design director for President Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. And before that, he forged his career in advertising and graphic design, working for studios and various social causes. And before that, he played bass in the 90s punk rock band Fluff, which is how I met him. And before that, he was a toddler in San Diego wearing a tiny tuxedo and learning impeccable manners. Renaissance man, anyone? Let's talk to Josh. My name's Josh Higgins. I'm in San Francisco, California, and I am a uh, creative director at Facebook. And I do that because I believe in the mission of connecting the world. I think it will, the more uh, empathy and understanding we have for other people, the better the world will be. So I definitely behind the mission. Well, I am down with that empathy and understanding all the way. Let's get to the root of that empathy and understanding. Let's talk about the very beginning of Josh Higgins, like little baby Josh Higgins. Where did you grow up? What was your family dynamic? What kind of kid were you? Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in Josh Higgins. <laughs> no, I grew up in San Diego um, and I was surfing, skateboarding my uh, whole youth. I think I started surfing at age seven. Oh, wow. My whole family surfed and my whole friends group surfed. I think the whole city of San Diego surfs, honestly. Like, I feel like I'm the last person who hasn't picked up a surfboard yet. You kind of, at least, at least um, I felt like almost pressured to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's peer pressure to get in yeah. the water. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was great. Like I said, my whole family surfed and grew up in San Diego in Mission Beach. My mom grew up there. And I'm just always like drawn to the water. I love water. I love the ocean. I love being next to the ocean. And I don't know if that's a result of, um, of like just being around it all the time. I don't know. Or, or if it's like from my family, mm. interesting thing to think about. And then around 18, I got really into playing music and started playing in bands around that time, just around San Diego and then had different bands. And then about, I think it was like 90, 90 or 91. Um, one of the bands got fairly successful in San Diego. I know that band. I was living yeah. in San Diego at the time. So I, I already told our listeners, but I know Josh from the San Diego music scene when he was in a, a really awesome San Diego band called Fluff. We're going to totally get to your punk rock cool. chapter. But I I really want to talk about your skateboarding, surfing, youth. Did you have a two-parent family? Do you have siblings? My parents divorced when I was, I think, three. My biological dad was an actor. I didn't know that. Do you think you get your performance gene from him? I think so. I definitely get, like, my manners from him. When I was young, he would take me to all these sort of, like, stuffy dinners um, where he was, I was in a little tux and he was in a tux and I was always taught like manners. Um, and I, <laughs> it's funny because I always thought that's just the way you were supposed to be. And then when I got a little bit older, people used to comment, God, you're so polite. Your manners are so great. And I was like, Oh, well, that, it, that's pretty cool that I learned that. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's pretty um, cool that you had a little baby tux, too. Awesome. <laughs> um, he was him and um, Jane Russell were Howard Hughes's first 
two actors that he signed to his production company. If you've seen The Aviator, my dad is in that movie um, about Howard Hughes. It was a big part of his life. So yeah, my parents got divorced. My mom remarried a couple years later. And so I had like, I don't know how deep we want to get into this, but I never, I didn't get along with my stepdad. And uh, it was always sort of like uh, me against him until mm. like, all, all like forever. It seemed like. At what age were you when, when he came into your life? Uh, around four four and five. Oh yeah. Those are formative years. That yeah. conflict. I'm sure that conflict shaped you in some way. For sure. It made me very angry. <laughs> and I used to, um, I remember being told when I was that age, that somehow I was like, I was always misbehaving. I was being bad. And, and through years of therapy, <laughs> I have found that um, it was more about me, like, expressing my, like, being bummed that my parents, like, I didn't have a dad, you know. But at the time, there wasn't, like, this understanding of, like, why kids are acting out, you know. It was just like, oh, you're being bad, like, stop it. Yeah, back then it was all just controlled with discipline exactly. and, uh, yeah, repercussions, either positive feedback or negative feedback. Totally. It was, all mine was negative. And so I think that contributed to me being a little bit angry and then, you know, um, finding this outlet for that um, in about seventh grade with punk rock. Punk rock is one of the most therapeutic outlets for <laughs> anger, isn't it? It was very good. <laughs> it was very good. It was just like this really great way to sort of express myself, express like anger. Some ways were better than others. It seemed like when I found that, like sort of movement, uh, I felt really at home. Did you have to combat any like self-destructive tendencies? No, I don't think I, I had, I didn't have any self-destructive tendencies. I had a lot of like destructive tendencies. I mean, I think it was pretty common at that time. I remember going to parties at places where like the whole intent was to destroy the house, kick the doors down, <laughs> kick holes in the wall, things like that. Uh, yeah, demolition is like a really great stress reliever. <laughs> it was amazing. It yes. was so fun. <laughs> Not to the person who was renting the house. But yeah, I think, and I think like uh, for me, when, when sort of the understanding of what, I mean, it was only recently, but punk rock sort of changed, my understanding of punk rock changed over the time that like I've understood what that is, you know. Um, at the time, it was an outlet for anger. Yeah, but, but tell me this. I mean, did it not also kind of help you? It's an outlet for anger, but it's also an outlet for creativity. And absolutely, Fluff was a, a pretty dynamic force in San Diego. So within that outfit, I'm sure you were honing a craft and, and you know, upping your standards of quality and figuring out what makes a really good piece of music, which is a work of art, you know, all of that's kind yeah. of comes out of it. Um, the anger expression, I don't know if, how it worked for you, but was the expression of anger, did that start to sort of recede to the background and the artistic mission of it all kind of come to the foreground? Exactly. Exactly. It, like that, you know, my understanding of punk rock in the beginning was like this, this way to express yourself. And, and let out anger. And then as that developed, 
as I was, you know, understood it better, it turned into like um, a do-it-yourself attitude, being able to be more like um, confident about myself. And, and then that led to like be confident about playing music. And yeah, it really turned into a, a way of approaching everything in my life, not just art and or music, but also just like, like I said, being confident um, about doing things myself. Yeah, there's a scrappiness to it. Like, yeah, if there's not already a recipe for this, I'll just make it. I'll figure it out how to do it and do it myself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And and the, and the two other guys that, you know, I was fortunate enough to play music with had the same attitude, which was awesome. Um, when you find, when you find that it's like, it bolsters all of those other things, uh, the confidence. And, you know, when you find two, two other people that feel the same way as you, and then it feels like not, not, you can conquer anything. And during this time, did you find your creativity come out any other way? Were you like interested in like designing flyers or album artwork, or were there any other parts of that world that you kind of absorbed um, and became creative in? I loved, I loved flyers. I, I had my whole room was like all the shows that I had been to all the shows I wanted to go to like the ones in LA that I didn't go to, but I had the flyer. Uh, my whole bedroom was pasted with those. And I, I never, like, I never connected like what actually till recently, I never connected what really drew me to the, those flyers. You know, I think in the beginning it was the bands, mm-hmm. uh, but then I really like, I noticed as I became a designer that I was like, I was emulating a lot of that, uh, aesthetic in my work. And, and even back then I was like, creating flyers and I had no idea like for our band, I was creating flyers. I had no idea that was design. Right. <laughs> um, I had no idea that that's like branding. I was, I was just in, I was in Kinko's. Um, I was showing my age because it's <laughs> office now, but um, uh, I was in Kinko's, you know, till like for hours and hours cutting out type and photocopying and enlarging it, cutting it out again, pasting it down. And I, I mean, I, I loved doing that. It was so much fun, but I connected, I didn't connect it with design. I connected with, Oh, this is part of being in a band, but yeah, I really enjoyed making flyers and I really enjoyed like the, the graphic nature of the flyers that I had. So what was the transition like going from musician to designer? Did you go to school and then realize that you were interested in art and that was an opportunity that you could pursue and get a degree? How did that kind of happen? In Fluff, we had a, um, we signed with, we we were signed with MCA Universal Records for a couple of years. And towards the end of that. That would have been like mid to late nineties. Yeah. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. And, and towards the end of that, it was like we were being very, we got very disenchanted with being on a major label. I, I think in some ways it was everything that we expected. In some ways it was like not. And I think the negative sort of started out way. And, um, and so I, I was like, you know, A, getting older. Two, this is not totally turning out the way I thought it would. I should probably think about something else other than just putting all my eggs in this basket. Cause all my, all, you know, all my effort, you know, for decades had been in music. I never had a contingency plan, but as I was getting older, I thought, Oh, you should probably think about that. 
So um, I met a friend of mine who had just graduated from a graphic design program. And she said, hey, I think you'd be a really great designer. And I said, well, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and she said, well, you know, those flyers you used to make for, for the band, that's design. And I'm like, holy shit, you can make money at that? <laughs> I, I put it off. Um, this is this is Jill, Amy. I think you know. Oh, yes. Yeah. Jill. Yeah. So I was putting it off, putting it off. And then one day she just like came and picked me up for lunch. And after lunch, she took me to introduce me to the person who led the department, her professor. At which school? At San Diego City College. Okay. And the woman that I met, her name's Candace Lopez. She was amazing. I don't know. I, I just felt like this connection with her right away. And I did it's first time meeting her. And then she said, I think you should just take my typography class. Cause I told her like, you know, I don't know. I don't have no clue what I'm doing. She said, well, I think you should take a typography, my type, my type class. And then just, you know, see if you like it. And then we can go from there. And I took that class, totally fell in love with everything design. And then that's pretty much how my career started. I did not know that. And so, and and then like, I never graduated. Um, I did a certificate program where it's like a two year thing where you get a certificate in graphic design or something like that. I, I'm not sure what they call it, but it was, um, I, I was sort of like, I need to get to work. That was sort of my like, okay, I feel like I have enough of the tools. I need to start working now. Um, Cause I was, was like working part-time as I was going to school and taking night classes. So it was like, it's kind of a gnarly time. Um, as far as like working, it was, it was a lot. And I was like, I, I need to like, just get to work. So, um, so yeah, I, I finished there and got, got my first job. What was your first job? I was an intern at a small studio in downtown San Diego. And, and then they, they ended up hiring me. Uh, I think I was there less than a year. And then I was like, um, I, I just wasn't challenged. Like each place that I've gone, I just felt like I get to a point where I don't feel challenged anymore. And I feel like I need to move on. That's sort of how my career in the beginning was. And so I bounced around to probably like four or five studios in San Diego. Were you picking up bits of information along the way, like how studios run, what clients are interested in, how to deliver presentations, which projects actually get a lot of traction, that kind of stuff. Yeah, totally. That was like, that was like the big, I think that was like probably the biggest learning for me was like the other side to being a designer, you know, being a good designer, the the skill and craft is only half of it. Right. I picked up those other things and, and, and actually I was interested in like the business of design too. You know, um, I was under, I was really interested in strategy. I was really interested in informed design all the way around. Um, and so, you know, and I remember one, one of the, um, one of the places I worked, he, uh, the owner didn't allow headphones when he worked. And his reasoning was because he wanted everyone to pick up on the other things were happening in the studio and not just be in their own little silos. And I thought like at the time I thought it was so lame. Like, I just want to listen to music, but now I'm so thankful for that. Cause I, I, I think it was a really brilliant thing to do because I learned so much by just like overhearing conversations and hearing, overhearing phone calls with clients. 
Yeah, you're you're plugged into the network that way instead of um, disconnecting. Yeah, it was really nice. I picked up a lot that way. So did you start? I know you've always been really active with social causes. You've done poster projects that you organized yourself for San Diego wildfires, Hurricane Katrina and other social causes in general. What was your motivation for that? And were you doing those projects while you were bouncing around in San Diego working for various firms? Yeah, um, I was. I, I went to I went to my first design conference um, in San Diego and I, I saw this speaker who talked about he started this thing called the link program in Seattle and what, what it did, it taught underserved teens art and design. And so what he would do is like ask, ask somebody in his community, like somebody, another designer artist in his community to, to dedicate a Saturday to teaching. And then he developed this program around that and it mm-hmm. would happen once a month. And he said he did that on the side and he dedicated a portion of his time to that cause. And I'm like, wow, that is really fucking cool. I I really like, I like that thought of being able to use this beautiful discipline that like makes me so happy to be able to like help out other people. That's Uh, the power of it. (laughs) So awesome. And And so, yeah. And so I, the first thing I did um, that I was able, you know, I I had that thought after that conference, I want to do this. And so I would, I would, um, I actually got involved in the link program in his program. They had uh, a chapter of link in San Diego that I got involved in right away. Um, I did that. And then um, one of the poster that I had done was uh, featured in like communication arts or something like that. And this guy, that was organizing a, a project around hurricane Katrina reached out to me after seeing my poster and asked me if I would design a poster um, to support his cause. And how that worked was he was asking artists and designers design a poster, print them in editions of 25 to hundred and then send them to him. He would sell them on this website that he designed and all the money would be donated to uh, hurricane Katrina relief. Mm. And I was like, God, that's a, that's awesome. And my poster ended up raising, um, you know, it sold out the first run. Then he asked me to change the colorway and do another run. They both sold out and they ended up raising like thousands of dollars. And I was like, wow, that was, that's way more money than I could have given from my bank account. So that Mm -hmm. was like, I was like, wow, that was really powerful. You realize like I can apply myself in a way that can generate more good for the world than just opening my wallet. It was really infectious. That feeling was so infectious that I just started um, finding those opportunities to be able to apply that. Um, And so when the wildfires went through San Diego and Los Angeles, Orange counties in 2007, I called him up and I asked him if I could use his model of the poster project for a project, you know, to help out victims of that and then organize that and then did the same for Haiti and then in between there, you know, I had, I had this idea around phone photography and when smartphones sort of came out, I noticed when I went to India that I took all, I took a, D, uh, a really nice camera with me, but all my photos of India were on my phone. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh man, I wonder like, you know, the, the convenience of this obviously contributed to that. I wonder what other 
what other folks have on their phones. So I started reaching out to like other creative people. And when I say that, I mean like skateboarders, other photographers, just a bunch of different like creative folks. And I said, I asked them to send me their, like their favorite, like their favorite photo on their phone. And I ended up with like 160 of these, like really great photos. And like, you can see themes where people were in their lives. Like if they have just had a kid, like their, their favorite photo was of their kid. And I said, God, I really need to share this with like other people. This is like too cool to like, just have. And so came up with this idea to um, print them all out and frame them and sell them and then give the money to Doctors Without Borders. And that is the story of the original phonography exhibition. That's right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And and was that a successful fundraiser as well? Yeah, it was. We sold uh, all the photos and donated at close to 10K to nice. Doctors Without Borders, which was awesome. I mean, I sometimes think about like, the amount of money compared to the like need. And it seems like such a drop in the bucket, but I guess every bit counts, you know, mm-hmm. I like just like being able to like use ideas and art to be able to help and fund uh, those types of situations. It's just like, it's awesome. When you add all these people, the firepower and the power of the whole thing just gets exponentially bigger, which is awesome too. Did you know you can get all your favorite fall drinks delivered right to your door? Well, you can with Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Compare prices across your local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. Right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code FALL5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. So, I mean, we have to spend some time talking about a a major gig in your life. (laughs) You were the design director for the Obama 2012 re-election campaign, which... Uh. Oh my God, what an adrenaline rush. And it was so just, holy shit, dude, like tell us how that came about and what it was like. And did your heart grow eight sizes being part of something so huge? Like, what? Yeah. yeah. I mean, as far, you know, uh, at the end of all of those, uh, at the end of every project that I would do, I would think, God, I wish I could do this for a living. 
would be so awesome to be able to just like always have this like great feeling, but you know, it's always having to do a day job and then, you know, these projects. And so I got an email. Uh, well, let me rewind a little bit. In 2008, I was a, a big Obama supporter and I did a poster with um, a friend, well, a bunch of friends, but with an illustrator named Rafael Lopez. And I worked on a poster for Obama with him. So I'd always been, you know, I'm not, I've, al- I've always been an Obama supporter. But four years later, I get this email and it says the headline was, Come work for the president, the subject line. I was oh my like, God. Well, did you think it was spam? I would I think totally that was spam. It was spam. I totally <laughs> it. So, and I didn't want to get punked, so I just replied, "Sounds interesting." <laughs> and then I got a, I got a uh, email like the end of that day with a conference call number to jump on a conference call. Oh my god! And I was like, "Holy shit!" And it I would have been shock. sweating. Uh, so intense, and I still was like. I still was like, this is, this is too bizarre. Uh, I still hadn't, you know, I hadn't really registered yet, but I'm like, just go, go with it. You know? Um, and so I called, I talked to, I talked to this, like, this, like four people. Um, and after the conversation was great, but at the end of the conversation, it felt like it wasn't really going anywhere. You know, I thought, Oh, that's probably the last conversation. And then, and then I got, we get this other email for this to talk to someone else. Um, so then I would talk to that person. Anyway, I went all the way up the chain. Uh, it was about a month of these types of interviews and calls. And every call you're starting to realize this is more and more a possibility. It's like, yeah, <laughs> totally. uh, by, by about the fourth call, I was like, I remember thinking, wow, I need to like start thinking of how I'm going to pull this off. <laughs> <laughs> And then I remember talking to, um, I remember talking to like this very senior person in the Obama campaign on my very last call and he was dropping F-bombs and I was just like, well, it's this guy for real. This is like, he's so down to earth. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Did you feel like he was being unprofessional or just being kind of authentic? Just being super authentic. Okay. But I, I didn't expect it from this political world. You know? Right. Everyone else I had talked to was so like buttoned up and, and very serious. And, you know, and then this guy was like so authentic and real. I was like, whoa, kind of threw me off. But then again, that call ended with like, I got a feeling like that was it. And I just thought, I remember, I remember saying to Ramona, I remember saying, well, that was cool. At least I, at least I was considered. That's pretty neat. You know? <laughs> And then I, I remember us being on the beach in Coronado and it was a Sunday and we were both like napping in the sun and, um, my phone rang, I picked it up and it said, hi, this is Teddy Goff from Obama for America. And he was a director. Um, and he said, we'd like to offer you the position of design director in 2012. And I remember I said to him, Hey, uh, hi, Teddy. Um, can I call you back? <laughs> he said, he said, sure. And I hung up and Ramona goes, who was that? And I go, they just offered me the position. And she said, you asked to call them back. <laughs> <laughs> but I was half asleep. I was like, still like in this sleepy state. And I, I wasn't sure like if it was real or what was going on. I was in that weird zone. 
And, and I knew that I had to talk to Ramona about it before, like I said, anything. Mm -hmm. So um, I remember saying, like talking about the pros and cons and how hard it was going to be to like, to like leave. And, you know, I was, I was now like, I had just made a partner at this agency I was at. And it was just like, all these things were like running through my mind. And she's like, you have to fucking do this. <laughs> uh, Ramona is is Josh's wife, then fiance, and also a good friend of mine. And she's got um she's got a very forceful compass. <laughs> <laughs> thank thank goodness. Yeah, thank she does. Because um, that was that's all I needed to hear. And I was like, okay, well, uh, it doesn't matter how we're going to make it work. We're going to make it work. And so I called him back, and I accepted, and packed up everything, and moved to Chicago. Wow. And I mean, I'm sure it, it helped knowing that when Ramona says you have to fucking do this, that sort of means you've got her support. Yes. Regardless sure. of what that looks like. So it was, that was very important piece. Yeah. But oh my God. Also chance of a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny. You know what, Amy, I didn't, it was funny. I didn't, I, I thought, I, I thought it was an important thing to do. But I never like I remember having people ask me like halfway through the campaign, well, what are you what are you going to do after this, man? What are you going to do after this? And I was like, I remember thinking, I'm not thinking I'm not even thinking about that right now. I'm thinking about like us winning <laughs> and and changing the world. And I never looked at the whole I never looked and maybe this is like me just being dense, but I never looked at the the whole I never looked at the opportunity as opportunity. I, I looked at it in, in that way. I looked at it as an opportunity to like do something fucking really powerful with my, my craft and be able to like do it for something that I believed in, you know? You know, as you were saying that, it's sort of, I got this image of a heart surgeon. Like when somebody comes in with a critical heart condition, you don't think like this surgery could make my career. What am I, you know, what am I going to do after this surgery? You're kind of like, okay, there's a mission here and we've got to get this done and we've got to do it as best as we possibly can to the top of our abilities. And then the biggest, best goal of this whole thing is a, a victory and a safe outcome. And it's like, that's all you can focus on. Speaking of the idea of victory, I mean, did you feel a sense of like responsibility or stress that like you were in charge of defining this campaign that might help get this person reelected? Beyond, I mean, it was the most stress and the most like the heaviest thing I've ever felt in my life. Wow. I can't, I, I can't even imagine. I'm like, I'm like <laughs> <laughs> were, were you, were there times when you were plagued by self doubt? Yes. The whole, the whole, I mean, driving out to Chicago, which takes four days was like probably the worst thing I could have done. Cause it was just, all you can do is think. Did you have a stomach ache? I would have had such a stomach ache. Oh my God. I was just like, so like thinking about every scenario and like, what could go wrong? And like, if you don't do this right, this, your career could be over <laughs> for sure. Um, Cause I mean, the thing, the thing that I also had working against me is like, or not, or for me and against me, it was like 2008 was a pretty powerful campaign as well. Mm -hmm. So if you don't do it at least that good or better, you could be like just blowing it, you know? Right. <laughs> 
So, oh my God. I'm, so I have that pressure too. I'm like stressed out right now just thinking about that. <laughs> I was thinking it was like, like super heavy, super heavy. And I, um, but once I got there, that all like melted away. It was gone. It was just like, okay, it became really real what needed to get done. And there was plenty of people around me letting me know what needed to get done. So once you get into it, it's sort of like how people like, when they're stressed out or something, they, they dive into their work and they forget everything else, you know, mm-hmm. it's sort of what happened. I just like got into it and didn't think about any of the other stuff and just like thought about what needed to happen and what needed to get done. And, and were you buoyed by the support of the team and everyone who was also there for the same mission and reason? It was amazing. It was so amazing to have, like the campaign was, um, 800 plus people. And that was just at headquarters. That's not state offices or anything. That was just at headquarters. And all those 800 people were supporting each other. Oh my God. That's like summer camp to the hundredth yeah. power. Like <laughs> totally. It totally was. It totally was. Everyone was like, just so supportive of everyone. There's, you know, people from 2008 that were working on 2012 And so they were super invested and they sort of knew how it worked already. So, you know, it was just really a great, such an amazing vibe inside the walls of that campaign with support and just everyone was same as me thinking about what needed to get done. And that's it. Well, clearly you did a good job because he got (laughs) reelected. At least you can say that. (laughs) Sure. Do you have any like scary almost failures or super exciting triumphant moments obviously the night of the victory must have been awesome i think um that that was definitely a big one the you know the winning was just amazing um because it was very unclear even in, for everyone until that night mm-hmm. at about eight o'clock you know eight thirty, it was unclear what was going to happen so that was awesome i think the scariest thing was I think it was like this constant scary thing of, of like everything was so scrutinized by the press and by everything. I mean, I remember somebody in the press picked up that a typeface that I, or we used was called revolution mm-hmm. and they got it wrong. That wasn't the typeface, but it, they looked similar to this typeface called revolution. And they created this whole story around how Obama is like trying to like ruin politics. And it was just ridiculous. And it was all over the name of a typeface. Oh, did they use that to incite like stories of, of yes. counter. Yeah. <sighs> exactly. He's, he's, he's working with the Russians. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was crazy. And I remember my director calling me at home um, and saying, Hey, did you really use a typeface called revolution? <laughs> I'm like, no, I didn't. I'll admit like the, what I use looks similar, mm-hmm. but the, like that, that was like the thing that was always like ever present was just like the scrutiny on everything you did on all the work. Yeah. That must be exhausting. Did it make you more risk averse or did it just make you better at dealing with the scrutiny somehow and rolling with it? Yeah. It just helped me. It helped me like, it didn't make me more risk averse, but it helped me look for um, every possible angle. Yeah. And it actually helps me to this day. When you go into a presentation, it's like, um, 
what questions will they ask? I want to be prepared for any questions that they're going to ask about this work, you know? And so it helped me sort of like up the game in that department. Yeah. What could be seen in this work that could be taken like spun negatively? Yeah, I guess you have to analyze everything. Just make sure it all checks out. To the person who said, have you thought about what you're going to do when this ends? You obviously (laughs) were like too in it, but I assume if you had known, you would have been like, yeah, I'm going to work at Facebook. (laughs) So after working on the campaign, I'm sure you had tons and tons of offers, but now you're working as creative director at the factory at Facebook. What exactly is that? (laughs) And what do you do? The factory is what we call the brand. It's the brand marketing team for Facebook. And so there's a few different like creative teams at Facebook. One of them is product design, which makes sense. They design Facebook itself and the interface and things like that. And then there's uh, business marketing. So there's a whole business side, like small business side of Facebook, many small businesses um, and, and even large businesses almost run their entire business off of Facebook. So there's a whole creative team to help them. And then there's brand marketing. Um, and that's the team that I'm a creative director in. And so we oversee everything from identity um, logos for Facebook through TV campaigns, outdoor um, and product marketing. So when Facebook launches uh, a new product and or feature, we're involved in marketing that. So what about Facebook and their mission is appealing to you being someone who's very interested in social causes and, you know, those types of things? Yeah. Uh, Well, when I first got the call from a recruiter at Facebook, my first thought was like, well, I actually said, no, I'm not interested because Mm -hmm. I I, I was thinking about like, what, like, what would, um, what would I even do uh, at Facebook? I don't even think my skills would apply. You know, because I just thought of, I didn't know what was going on up here. I had no idea, like the types of creative that they have. And so I just thought, oh, you're going to work on the app. And that doesn't sound like right. a great fit for me. So uh, a couple of months later, uh, another recruiter called back and said, well, let us fly you up here. And so you can at least like we can talk to you in person, sort of show you around and you can understand like what, what we're building up here. So I came up to Facebook and the first thing that I noticed was like, everyone's like so happy. Everyone's walking around like seemingly pretty stoked on their job. And <laughs> any, any place I had worked before, there was always like a few people that were like, fuck this place, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, and I, I didn't, I didn't see any of that. Um, and everyone that I spoke to was like really, really down for the mission and, that day I learned what the mission was and Mark's mission is to make the world more open and connected. And, you know, before being here, you know, I didn't know the mission, but I just thought, you know, I thought of Facebook as just this big corporation, you know? And after like, like being here, I was here, I I was up here for two days, um, getting to like talking with people and stuff. And as I talked to everyone I talked to, was like would reference the mission and in whatever discipline they were working in. Um, so I talked to like people in the communications department, policy department, product design, like across like a bunch of different disciplines. And everyone was like really invested in this. And, and, and it was because Mark feels that 
you know, the more we know about each other, the more empathy we will have and, and, and the more understanding we have of each other. And I was like, that totally aligns with what I'm like, feel like I should be on the planet for. And, and we're all doing it. Like we're all contributing to that in different ways. Right. You know, coming up on four years, I think next month I'll have been here four years and, um, that's never changed. It like the, the, the trajectory of the company is never like, Oh, we're going to go do this now, or we're going to go do this now. Like if you look at anything Facebook does, it all ladders to that mission. It all it, like, that's the North star for everything the company does. And I think that's what like helps me stay here and be so invested about being here. Mm-hmm. It's always unwavering. Yeah. I like hearing that because I am like you were, I view Facebook as just some sort of corporate machine um, <laughs> that's trying to take over the internet. And so it's nice to hear from someone internally who's been there for a while who talks about them in such a positive way and that there's like this sense of community and this sense of, of social mission um, behind the whole company. And that, I mean, everybody that you've encountered is, is happy and enjoys doing what they do. That's really refreshing. If it was any other way, I wouldn't be here still. The opportunity is awesome, but it's not so awesome that I would want to like compromise, like what, what makes me happy inside, which is like feeling like I'm contributing to something greater than myself. That's awesome. Mark makes acquisitions, um, you know, of Oculus, which is virtual reality. And at the time, even internally, people were like, wow, why did he, why did he like buy a virtual reality company? And, and now like virtual reality is anywhere you read. It's about like this, like enhanced way of connecting with people. Yeah. It's about literally standing in someone else's shoes. (laughs) Yeah. So that makes sense. You know, when he bought Instagram, same, you know, just he saw that people were like interacting, connecting with each other in a different way. And he thought that that was a, you know, a great thing to invest in. Turns out it was. When I look at like everything, like all the moves that Mark makes and the things um, that he's done in the past, um, it all, it it always ladders up to that and Mm -hmm. makes me like feel better about being here. That's awesome. So let's talk about you, Josh, the person, the creative. I ask a lot of creative people this, like, what's your process look like? But I'm, I'm more interested in learning how you ideate. Like, are you a sketchbook guy or do you like record voice memos or do you just take like photos on your phone? How, how does all of that kind of come together? I usually use words. Um, and so I write words. I usually, in, I have a sketchbook, but it's mostly of words or sentences that help. I always start with an idea. I rarely start with any sort of execution. So usually those words will help like define the idea. And some of them are just like a reminder to me, but like some of them are actually to do with the idea. So is that, is that done more like solo or do you typically brainstorm along with a team of people? So it depends on the project. I think usually with a team, it's like discussing the idea, but when it's like solely my part of that, like part of my role in that project is coming up with the idea, it will be like solo, like writing words down in a sketchbook. We've talked to a lot of designers and creatives, and some of them talk about the process of coming up with ideas. Like some people 
do like physical activity or some people take, you know, long walks in nature or whatever. Is there like a specific thing that you do that's more like ritualistic? Yeah, um, I like to drive. Usually the best is driving with classical music on like very low. That's my that's my ritual. That sounds very relaxing. Yeah, it is. It's super <laughs> relaxing. And and oftentimes I go in, I go in and out of thinking about the idea. Mm-hmm. Like I'll be thinking about it and then I won't be getting anywhere. So then I'll start thinking about something else. And then it's sort of, I, I sort of flow in and out. And it seems to be like the best for me. I keep a pad of paper and a pen um, like in the passenger seat. And sort of write down words and things that will help me remember or shape the idea. Do you feel like so that I totally can relate to that just because I love to drive too? something about all the imagery and the scenery passing in and out of my brain, but not really having enough time to linger seems to clear it out and also seems to like create a path for like new ideas to come in. I don't know. It just seems really therapeutic for my thinking. Yeah. I want to ask you this because I've also been really keenly aware that being in a band is not because I've been in a band, but just because I've witnessed it pretty closely that being in a band is an amazing feat of collaboration. I mean, not only do you have to create together, but you have to perform together. Frequently you have to live together in a van and, and, and on people's floors or, you know, even if you get to a level where you have a bus and, fancy hotel rooms, you still are basically cohabitating and you have to bring your lives into the whole situation. And so you're collaborating on many different levels. And I'm wondering if you feel like those early years were sort of like street school for your professional life now. Yeah. Collaborating creatively with a team. I thought about that a lot. I think, yes, for sure. In those situations, you sort of have to read the room and that like emotions of like the two other people you're in a band with. Yeah. And in, and in your communicate and how you approach the communication um, in the different moods that, you know, like those two individuals have. And that's really helped me read clients and read a room when I'm working as well as like the hustle of being in a band and like promoting yourself and connecting with you know, club owners and that kind of thing and promoting yourself. I feel that's also like really sort of shaped or helped me in my career. And there's also a level of like the show must go on, right? You can't really have food poisoning on the night of a, I mean, even if you do, you still have to play your bass. I mean, you can't cancel the show because you're not feeling it that minute. Right. Which I think is a little bit, like boot camp for pitching your ideas. Do you think? I totally do. Yeah. I mean, there's so many parallels, like the ones I just talked about, but then also just like crafting with other people, like crafting ideas with other people is like, you know, there's, there's a, there's this like art to that, you know? And it's like being open and collaborative as well as like being able to express your own ideas. Like that was like, I think a, helps me really shape like how I work with teams now or how I work with other people. So couch surfing or working for the Obama campaign, those are very stressful, crazy situations. But 
you know, nothing prepares you to become a parent. <laughs> so uh -huh. I heard you recently became a parent. So I would love to know um, how has fatherhood shifted your perspective on everything? I mean, literally 180, probably. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I, I never realized that I could love someone as much as I love him. <laughs> He's pretty lovable. I mean, how old is he and what is his name? His name's Leo and he just turned one. Oh. Like two two weeks ago. And he just helps me to realize what's really important. And like my work life, and I've even had people um here at work say that they've seen like a change in my demeanor and the way I sort of carry myself around the office. Um, ever since Are I'm you glowing or something? <laughs> I'm just glowing. I'm way more happy. Um, some things I just don't give a fuck about. Yeah. Like, gonna, uh, like you're not going to like that. I don't care about that as much as I did. You know, it's like what's important is like really clear to me now. Whereas I thought my career was like number one and it's still important to me. But like that little guy is like so important. And yeah, I told I told Ramona last night, I'm like, this weekend, I think I fell in love with both of you more than I ever have. Aww. Just because Aww. I had just like such a great weekend with like with Leo and and Ramona, like. It was in, it was in, so insane. And I was I don't know, it was it's really I'm having trouble explaining it, but it was like it's really really important to me that um those two ramona and leo are like taken care of and their needs are met before my career mm. and that's not always been the case yeah i think you know having a kid really gets you in touch with your own mortality in a way it all of a sudden just becomes like this it's they're almost like the physical manifestation of of your mortality and so I think a lot of people, when they have children, they just start thinking about what's more important in life, just because like, they just have a completely different perspective, like you were saying, at least that's also been my experience, um, having a kid. So it, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy all the way from like, Hey, I don't want to do, I don't want to make the mistakes. I think my parents made to, you know, like, I mean, just across the board, like everything is everything is considered, you know? Oh yeah. That's a whole new level of stress is like, can you be a better parent than your yeah. parents were <laughs> to you? And how can you try to fuck your kid up way less than your parents so, fucked you up? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's like top of mind all the time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, some of those fuck ups that you had to go through, those challenges you had to live through made you stronger. I'm not advocating for being a bad parent. I'm oh. just saying that they're, it's DIY, right? It's the ultimate yeah. DIY. There is no recipe. You've got to do it the way that feels right. I totally agree with you. Um, tell Ramona that. <laughs> <laughs> she, she thinks my childhood was gnarly. And I'm like, well, yeah, maybe, but it, it made me who I am, you know? And she's like, how can you think like that? So it's it. <laughs> Well, ultimately, as adults, it's really all about how we process our childhood, right? Yeah. 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 For sure. Don't make the same mistakes. So, you know, Leo's going to grow up and he's either going to, well, I mean, he could, he could 
be whatever he wants to be. He might be rebellious and then you might get a taste of your own medicine, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And you and I both, you know, we went through a healthy dose of rebellion and I, I advocate for it. I think I had to find my own rules and protocols. You know, I was, I was never about bucking authority just for the sake of mischief or evil. I was really about finding the edges of like, why do we have to do it this way? I think there's a better way to do it. Yeah. I think mentorship and rebellion kind of go hand in hand as kind of a, a, a magic cocktail for life formation. And I know that you, you've talked a little bit about rebellion and punk rock and, and anger being the pathway to really harnessing your creativity. Do you have any mentorship stories? Is there anybody sort of stood out as a, as a, as a pathway finder for you? Yeah. Yeah. There are, there's two people actually. One is um, the woman, Candace Lopez, who I mentioned. Mm-hmm. San Diego city college. Yeah. And she really like, she didn't just do this with me, but she did this with like students who she saw were really making an effort to like, cause you know, there's always kids, people in school that are just there cause they have to be. Mm-hmm. But the, the folks in her classes that she saw was really making an effort. She would um, sort of take you under her wing and maybe give you like a little bit extra encouragement and or help with things. And she really did that with me. And um, I am forever grateful. She really taught me that like using like she taught me the fundamentals of like how an idea is the most important thing. But she also was the one that instilled like using this as a power for good is like so important. Mm. And that was like from day one, she always talked about that. So she was a huge, she was a really big influence on me. Um, and you know, I continue to this day, um, you know, I, we still talk quite often and I thank her every time I talk to her, like either in the beginning of our conversation or in the end, I thank her for like, you know, everything that she helps me with. And, you know, the, the highlight for me was like being able to, invite her out to Chicago and, and show her Obama headquarters and introduce her to my team. Oh, that must've been so awesome. It was so amazing. It was so amazing. It was really nice. And then the other person is someone who Candace introduced me to, and his name was Doyle Young. He's um, a typographer, old, old school typographer. And he taught at art center. He not just taught me about typography, but he was also just like such, um, he was such a badass in what he did. And he was mm-hmm. so respected, but he was so down to earth and so giving of himself and his time that uh, I learned, I learned a lot from him on not just typography, but just being a better human. Oh, wow. Just seeing how he conducted, like him being such a badass and such a, like a revered person at art center but then he was just like this very human, kind, giving person. I don't know. It was just like such an awesome way of being, you know, and uh, that really, he really taught me a lot. Do you think he was a, a bit of a surrogate father figure, considering your stepfather was so conflict ridden? I think I wanted him to be. Yes. Yeah. I think I wanted him to be for sure. I think I looked probably more to him as how he acted and let, you know, obviously his typography and was just like amazing, but like, I really, what strikes me most about knowing him is um, how he 
like how he conducted himself. He's a real role model for you. Yeah. Yeah. He was awesome. Well, shout out to art school teachers. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. They're doing a very powerful, um, a powerful service for good in the world. So let's talk about your future. Tell us, well, maybe you can tell us what you've got going on at Facebook or what's coming soon that we could look out for. And can you reveal any insider secrets <laughs> on what's going on at Facebook headquarters? Like, are you guys going to, I don't know, fly to the moon or Mars or anything? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I'm trying to think. I actually can't. I'm trying to think of something that I could say. Well, if you think about what Facebook's involved, like last year, last year, a big part of of what Facebook was investing in was virtual reality. Oh, so what you're saying is there's bound to be some really exciting VR products coming out. Yes. Oh, I think um, it'll be really interesting to folks to see what what um, Facebook has been working on since that announcement last year. So what about personal projects? Is there anything that you're doing soon that you're excited about? Are you going on a trip or doing a personal project? I'm really excited about a personal project that I started about probably three weeks ago um, after the inauguration of our president current president, um, and his travel ban. Um, I've been, uh, searching for a Syrian graphic designer, um, which are really hard to find. Um, mm-hmm. but after about three weeks of searching, I found a gentleman and we've been able to communicate. And what I wanted to do is, um, partner with him to design a poster that says welcome in Arabic. And overprint that over welcome in English. Uh-huh. And then uh, I'm going to sell that poster and donate the money to the ACLU. Oh, I like That's it. Fantastic. I've been working with him like the last week and we've been like sketching and sending things back and forth. Um, and it's been a really fun, interesting collaboration. And there's a definitely there's a language barrier. But we're able to overcome it with art and design, which is amazing. I love that art is so universal. It's the international language of healing. So awesome. It's so awesome. So that's that's like a personal project that I've been working on. Oh, that's very exciting. I, I love that. One more question. This is more yeah. personal. But when you think about your whole lifespan, what is one thing that you hope to contribute in your lifetime. And I know we've talked a lot about your social causes and your, your mission in the world. So this doesn't even have to be something that meaningful. It could be completely trivial, but just like one little mark you hope to leave on the world. I guess the mark is, is like how I'm remembered. Like that's, that's like really like kind of important to me. It's like, if I can exit this this uh, place and have people think of me as someone who wanted to um, help others, like I'll be stoked on that. Cause it's really like, it gives me like the most, um, pleasure is to be able to like help causes and things like that. So it's, I'm, I'm kind of like, I don't know, maybe that's just like a one, I'm a one note person, but it's like, <laughs> it's really what I'm just always focused on, you know? And I don't, I just think it's so important, you know? Well, I think doing a lot of good in the world does require focus. So Cheers to you for that focus. Thank you. Where can our listeners find you on the web and social media if they want to see your work and follow your projects? 
joshhiggins.com. Almost everything is up to date there. And then from there, my Instagram and Facebook is there as well. Um, I take a lot of pictures on Instagram to um, sort of document what's going on in my life. So currently there's a lot of Leo pictures. <laughs> well, he's pretty cute. He's pretty easy on the eyes, that kid. I saw he just got a drum kit. <laughs> yes, I'm so excited. You are so, a brave man giving a four-year-old a drum kit, but I mean, I guess you have to, right? I have to. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. Thanks, Josh. That was such a great conversation. That was fun. Thank you. Yeah, so that's Josh Higgins. He's a good man through and through. Yeah, I am fascinated with the all of the incredible opportunities he's had, but also he's such a good dude, like doing good stuff in the world. So it's a beautiful thing. You know, I knew him from the punk rock scene in San Diego and I kept tabs on him and I certainly knew that he was getting more and more involved in social causes, but I didn't know him well enough to know that his childhood was rough or that his moral compass and his integrity and his drive to help humanity was was so strong. I, I knew it, but I hadn't heard him articulate it to me before. So it's a profound feeling to hear a friend reveal themselves to you mm-hmm. and and reveal the the goodness of their heart. I've always been amazed with his talent. You and I both got together to do this podcast because we believe that design can change the world. So it just makes me ever so happy to hear about his stories of of design actually changing the world, even if it's, you know, a small monetary contribution to Doctors Without Borders or something. I loved that he was able to find an outlet for his anger because that's not always the case with people who have difficult childhoods or home situations. So finding punk rock and then having it evolve from just this this place to vent um, and get out the angst. And it turned into this really artistic thing for him. And then the world that surrounded music was artistic as well. And I thought that was really cool how he was able to be like, oh, now I can make this connection that like band posters or gig posters are like designed by somebody. And that's a job. Yeah, it's branding. (laughs) I mean, we didn't call it that, but that's absolutely what it is. And the hustle um, that rides sidecar with being a band is, you know, you make the music, but then you still have to get it out there. You have to either distribute it yourself or link up with a label. When you're out there touring, you're you're booking shows and dealing with club owners and negotiating rates and, you know, figuring out how to get yourself from point A to point B to play those shows, finding your audience, connecting. And it's ultimately a big strategic exercise in connection, right? Getting your message from in your head out into a format that people can understand and relate and resonate with and then getting it actually delivered to the people. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this about him, but it doesn't surprise me at all. That strategy is every bit as fascinating to him as the actual creation of the artwork. Knowing that now, it makes a lot of sense to me that he ended up at Facebook, where he can be involved in such an enormous strategy. Mm -hmm. I always love when we have a guest who's recently had a child, because I love hearing you and that guest talk about parenting. I know, and I didn't mention that I also 
bought my four-year-old a set of drums this Christmas. So I, I know, I was I waiting totally, for that. And it's so funny because he's so excited about it. And that's exactly how my husband is. He's just so excited to let Amelia bang on the drums. And like the drums are right below my office. And so I'm like, uh, drums, what did I do? <laughs> but yeah, I, I think having a kid is like, it's just bananas. And it's an experience that is almost you're unable to communicate it with words. So like it just changes your whole perspective of everything. And I I appreciated that he acknowledged that like some things just aren't important anymore to him. And I, I don't think you always get there, even if sometimes if you have kids, you don't always get there. But, you know, getting to the point where you realize like what's important in the world, what things you should just let go of. Um, and then you could become a happier person. I mean, he said that people in his office noticed that he was just happier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think when you like change your perspective on what really matters, it can ultimately just make you a, a better human. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes and see images of Josh's work. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcasts because we love hearing from you guys. Hey, really quick, we want to know, how do you listen to podcasts? I mean, there's so many apps out there. Do you use one of those apps? If so, let us know which one you like the best by tweeting us at Clever Podcasts. This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modell of Your Studio with music by L1011. Did you know you can get all your favorite fall drinks delivered right to your door? Well, you can with Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Compare prices across your local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. Right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code FALL5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com.